you want to use it? I didn't ask about a mic. You can. There was a particular day that I was walking, and as is typical of me, at least, I had my cell phone in front of my face, so my face is down, my nose is down, and I'm interacting through text messages and checking my emails. And this thought came across my mind, you just missed it. And I thought to myself, just miss what? You just missed the flowers. You just missed the warm breeze on your face. But more importantly, you just missed the people. And I started to think about it. What if the Good Samaritan, everybody knows the Good Samaritan story of the man who found the gentleman victimized laying on the road. What if he was so engaged with his busyness with his need to get things done, and his face was down with his cell phone, and he walked right by the man on the road. And what I want to share with you today, the title of my presentation is The Three Mile an Hour God. The Three Mile an Hour God. Right outside of the chapel here is Portland Avenue South. Then you have Chicago and you have Park. Portland Avenue South is important to me because I spent 10 years of my life living on Portland Avenue slash Chicago slash Park Street the first, for uh, 10 years. The first four years were spent going to this, at the time, North Central Bible College, now called North Central University. I spent four years going to school here, and I was originally in a social science major, but then transferred or transitioned in to what at that time they called cross-cultural communicators, cross-cultural communications major. And so I studied here at North Central, and to this day, I still have a nightmare about being here. Well, I have a lot of them, actually, but one of them happens to be that when I came to school here, to get in and out of the doors, they had combinations instead of Who's laughing? Who knows how old I really am? <laughs> I know, Nan, you're laughing. <laughs> no, no, not you? Okay. It dates me, I know. But the um, combination would change every, every, so, every month so that, you know, people wouldn't get so used to it and people could sneak in. So you had to learn, get something in your mailbox to tell you the new combination. But I have, the nightmare that I have to this day is that I forget the combination. I get to it. And in, I'm late for my final. And I'm trying to type in 0135, no, 5013, 2015. <laughs> and I have this nightmare constantly still at my age of 54 years old. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was in the cross-cultural communications major here at North Central, what I was taught is that to be a missionary to be a cross-cultural communicator, to step into another people group, another culture, and make God known in noble ways. There's two, way, two important, vital ways to do that. One is to be incarnational, and one is to be able to identify with the people that you want to make God known in noble ways. That's what I was taught here at North Central, here on the north end of Portland Avenue. When I graduated from North Central, Bible College, 
Two days after graduation, I moved to the south end of Portland Avenue. Why? To move in with the Cambodian family of eight members living in a one-bedroom house on Portland Avenue South. I made it nine people living in a one-bedroom house. It was so crowded that they had a bed actually in the kitchen. And the only place they could tuck me was to put my bed in a hallway. And there I did life. Why did I move from graduating from North Central University at this end of Portland to the other end of Portland and live among the Cambodian refugees was so that I could be an insider, so that I could identify with them, their pain, their hurt, their struggle, be one of them. Because I had the choice. My mother and father lived in a suburb in White Bear Lake. I could have lived with them and drove in to the Cambodian refugee community, shared the gospel with them, and then drive back out. But what I was taught right here at this school, that the best way to make God known in noble ways is to move in and live with people, be relational with them, identify with them. And as I was living with that family, I remember I would get up in the morning, and I, all the, the, the children of the family were off at school, and I would hear this crying. And there's only one bedroom, so it's not hard to figure out where to go. And I would move the curtain, because the beds were divided by curtains, and I would move the curtain, and the mother of the family was crying because she was a mother who had to... Her husband was killed during the genocide in Cambodia, and she had to lead her children out of the country, out of Cambodia, out of the genocide, to Thailand to become a refugee, and then was welcomed here in America as a refugee, and as a mother, was trying to figure out how to do life with still being in the midst of post-war trauma. But because I lived with them, I got to minister to at the point that she was crying. Because if I lived in the suburb, I would come in, and we would have a relationship, but it would be more superficial. It would be more organized. But because I moved in and I lived with them, I got to relate to her and that family on an organic, spontaneous, dynamic relationship. And after I, that family, I moved in with another, I moved into an apartment building on Portland Avenue South with 30 Cambodian families in it. I was the only Anglo-Saxon. I moved in, went up to the third floor. It was like living in a village. It was winter, but Cambodians are used to being together in groups outside, so they would sit in the hallways. And I would go sit with them, and I would eat rice with them. I would try to hold a Bible study in my apartment on the third floor while the Buddhist monks were trying to gather people on the first floor. One day, a man got in off the street into the uh, apartment building, and he grabbed a Cambodian kid and brought him to the basement and raped him. And so this, this was becoming very dangerous for, I, this, I moved in with them, so their problems were now my problems. I purposely made sure my income was no more than their income. Sometimes the Cambodians had to help me, sometimes I had to help them. I did that on purpose so that I would create a relationship of reciprocity, mutuality, where we, I wouldn't go in as the hero, according to my book, where I didn't go in to fix them, where I didn't go in to create a nonprofit to fix them, but where I went to be one of them. And actually, one day, I was trying to get into the building, and I was uh, jumped by two people from the outside, 
And eventually, one of the Cambodian men who was a manager of the apartment came up to me and he said, Gene, we need you to be a captain of the third floor. And I said, well, what is a captain of the third floor? <laughs> and he said, well, the police aren't doing anything to help us with our safety, so we're going to take it into our own hands, and we're going to appoint a captain for each floor, and we want to appoint you to be a captain. And I said, well, what is it required to be a captain? Well, you got to carry a gun. Oh, okay. <laughs> huh. <laughs> at this point, um, I'm, I'm a home missionary at this time. I don't think that I, at least in my missions training, I didn't hear that we get to carry guns. So I'm just going to decline. I'm willing to be a captain. But the best I can do is scream, help! For six years, I lived incarnationally and identified with the Cambodians as an insider rather than an outsider coming in. And I started a Cambodian church for Cambodians in St. Paul, Minneapolis. And then it was time for me to go to Cambodia, the actual country, as a career missionary. As I was getting ready to be a missionary in Cambodia, I started to hear words and lingo, the mission culture of the day that, I didn't, that wasn't on my radar. People begin to ask me, oh, when you go to Cambodia, what project are you going to start? What program are you going to launch? What institutions are you going to establish? And I begin to realize, wait a minute, what do you mean? I need to launch projects? I need to build buildings? And they begin to say, yeah. And I realize that, wow, here's a tension that I've never felt before. On one hand, I was taught to be incarnational, to identify with the people, to be organic, to be spontaneous, to do life, to be communal. And on the other hand, it sounds like I'm supposed to, as a missionary, all of a sudden be a fundraiser, and a donor, and a project manager, and an employer. You see, with our, as Americans, according to our worldview, we have the propensity to see a need see a human need and then turn it into a cause. And then once we turn it into a cause, we like to institutionalize it. And then once we institutionalize it, we have to sanitize it. And then once we sanitize it, it becomes a commodity that we have to do what with it? We have to market it and we have to fund it and then we, have to, then we end up franchising it. And that need that we set out to meet through love, spontaneous love, love thy neighbor as thyself, love God with all your heart, soul, and might, went from being organic, spontaneous, relational, to being something that's organized and needs a lot of attention. And then we're no longer running the cause. The cause is running us. We're no longer, ma it's maintaining us. What I was beginning to find attention for me was I was trying to balance mission by remote, by technology, mission by program and project, and mission through relationship through incarnational, through community, and through identification. You know, I think about it. Jesus, which one was he? Which way did he lean more towards? When he went to meet the women at the well, he could have, his mind could have been going, oh, look at, she's here in the middle of the day, the heat of the day. She has to come to this well all by herself. You know what? And then he goes from her to thinking about a cause. Oh, I could catch, this is a cause. I need to start a water well ministry. I need to start an organization to start water wells and bring them all around the world. And 
boy, I need to institutionalize this and start a, start a nonprofit. But he didn't. He didn't let, he didn't turn that particular relational identification time to meet a woman at a well and introduce a God in noble ways to her by using the analogy of the water in the well and her religious experience on the mountain as a Samaritan. He didn't capture it in a cause and then put it into an institution and then franchise it. Recently, I've been reading a book called The Church's Movement. And I read this statement, and I thought, wow, this is thought-provoking. It's been said that Christianity started out in Palestine as a community, moved to Greece and became a philosophy, went to Rome, became an institution, and went to Europe and became a government, and then came to America and became a, any guesses? A business, an enterprise. And they, ended with that and they ended with that quote with this question, what might it take for us to get back to community? <laughs> you know, because I'm interested in missions, obviously, I spent 16 years in Cambodia trying to figure out that tension between living with the Cambodians, being in community with them, identifying, yet that other voice that says you need to create causes, you need to create projects in Cambodia, you need to institutionalize things. I came across a book that's written by an author here in Minnesota, Ward Brem, called White Man Walking. <clears throat> and Ward Brem went to Kenya many times on short-term missions trips. Many times he would go over there, and one day he met a man who is from West Pokot, Pokot, and this man is a believer in Jesus Christ, but he, happened, he used to be a warrior. But then he was redeemed by Jesus, so they still call him a warrior, but he's a redeemed warrior. And then he's a chief of a village, and he's also a pastor. And Ward Brem, the Minnesotan, met this man in Kenya and spent time over there with him on his missions trips. So one day, this redeemed warrior slash chief slash pastor by the name of John Ladino came to Minnesota to visit Ward Brem. And they were sitting out on the back patio deck having a meal together. And Ward's wife said to this redeemed warrior, chief pastor, he said, I'm so glad you finally came to America, to Minnesota, to be with my husband because he's went your direction and has gone to see you so many times. And John Ladino said, your husband has never been with me. So the wheels are turning. What do you mean all the times my husband was in Kenya? He wasn't actually there, the wife's thinking. The husband, Ward Brem's thinking, wait a minute. I've been there so many times. What are you saying? And this is what he said. He said, no, we've never been together. When you come to Kenya, you're always with the people you bring. You stay in a separate house on the hill, you eat with your group, sleep with your group, and only meet with us for a short time. And we know that the people in your group often, often talk about us behind our backs. And then he made this comparison. He said, just as a 4th of July parade in America is not an accurate depiction of the life here in America, the celebratory greetings that the Kenyans give Ward and his friends, when they come, 
does not depict community and relationships that they live in their lives. In other words, he was saying, when you come, it's artificial. When you come, it's superficial. And he said, well, then he said, well, then what am I supposed to do? He said, if you want to be with us, if you really want to be with us, walk with us for five days when we go on a trek in our community, in our way of living. Five days. So he said, all right, I'll do it. So he went straight over to REI and bought all this camping equipment and water sanitizers and a big bulk of stuff. And he shows up to walk with these men who are all-time well-known redeemed warriors and chiefs. And they look at him with all the stuff on his back. And Ladino says to him, we're going to need a, to buy a donkey to carry that burden that you brought with you. And Ward Brun says, well, what do you take on trips like this? They said, all we bring is a walking stick, and we make do as we go. So he started shedding off all of that paraphernalia that he put on his back, and he walked with them for five days. Read the book. His life was changed. Nine times, a hundred times he went to Kenya, met with this man, met with his people, knew nothing, artificial, superficial, because it, to him it was a program. To him it was a, a ministry trip. To him it was a, a nonprofit work. But this time he walked as one of them and lived life with them. And because of that, they wrote him a letter, and they, sent, they gave him the letter. Pastor John Ladino wrote this letter. When I read it, wouldn't you love to have somebody write a letter about you like this? John Ladino, Pocat pastor, this is what he wrote to Ward Brem. In Africa, white men don't walk. The missionaries, the doctors, the donors, when they come, they come in vehicles. They always drive. Ward was different. Ward walked. That was amazing to us. Ward walked with us across some of the most difficult terrain in West Pocat. No white man has ever done this before. So the message went out across the land. A white man is walking to Marbor. At the end of our journey, the elders gave Ward the title Nyakan. If I'm pronouncing it right, I don't know because I speak Cambodian. Meaning, a brave man who faces the unknown with only faith in God. The letter says, Ward crossed not only mountain ranges, but also lines of convention. He broke barriers. He is no longer viewed as a donor. He walked, and in the process, he became one of us. Ward is our friend, our brother, a warrior, a pocot. If his accomplishment could be reflected in his skin color, he would have come, he would have come home black. The world is sorely in need of you right here in this room. But what they need is somebody who can be, just be with them, just be a part of their life. That when they answer why you're here, you don't have to answer, well, I work with such and such an organization. But you can answer, I'm here to be your friend. I'm here to get to know you. I'm here to get you to know you so well that I'm going to be able to make God known in noble ways to you. 
one of the best examples, the most potent cross-cultural mission experience where somebody goes to get to know someone and make God known in noble ways is in Acts 17, verses 16 through 34. And I'm going to read this. It's a little bit long. But as I read it, would you imagine yourself in this story? Picture yourself being the one who's left alone by his friends, by Timothy and your other friends who said, we'll beat you in Athens, but they're not showing up, they're late for whatever reason, and you find yourself alone, what do you do with your alone time? What do you do when your cell phone is broken, when you don't have anything around you, and all you can possibly do is be and smell and taste the people around you? Let's read about Paul, and please put yourself in his story. So Paul found himself alone for some time in Athens. He would walk through the city, feeling deeply frustrated about the abundance of idols there. As in the previous cities, he went to the synagogue. Once again, he engaged in debate about Jesus with both ethnic Jews and devout Greek-born converts to Judaism. He would even wander around in the marketplace, speaking with anyone he happened to meet. Eventually, he got into a debate with some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Some were dismissive from the start. Philosophers. What's this fast talker trying to pitch? He seems to be advocating the gods of some distant lands. They said this because of what Paul had been preaching about Jesus in the resurrection. This stirred their curiosity, stirred their, stirred their curiosity, because the favorite pastime of Athenians, including foreigners who had settled there, was conversation about new and unusual ideas. So they brought Paul to the rock outcropping known as the Areopagus, where Athens intellectuals regularly gathered for debate, and they invited him to speak. May we, know, may we understand this new teaching of yours? It is intriguingly unusual. We would love to know its meanings. Athenians, as I have walked your streets, as I have walked your streets, I have observed your strong and diverse religious ethos. You truly are a religious people. I have stopped again and again to examine carefully the religious statues and inscriptions that fill your city. On one, on one such altar, I read the inscription to an unknown God. I'm here to tell you about, I am, I am not here to tell you about a strange foreign deity, but about this one whom you already worship, though without full knowledge. This is, who, this is the God who made the universe in all it contains, the God who is the king of all heaven and earth. It would be illogical it would be illogical to assume that God, the God of this magnitude could possibly be contained in any man-made structure, no matter how majestic. Nor would it be logical to think that this God would need human beings to provide him food and shelter. After all, he himself would have given to humans everything they need, life, breath, food, shelter, and so on. This God made us, this God made us in all our diversity from one original person, allowing each culture to have its own time to develop, giving each its own place to live and thrive in its distinct ways. 
His purpose in all this was that people of every culture and religion would search for the ultimate God, grope for him in the darkness, as it were, hoping to find him. Yet in truth, God is not far from any of us. For you know the saying, you know your own poetry says that we live in God, we move in God, we exist in God. And still another said, we are indeed God's children. And I'd like to jump down to verse 33. Paul left at that point, but some of the people followed him and came to faith, including one from Areopagus named something something, a prominent woman who named something something and others. I didn't take Greek and Hebrew in here, so my pronunciations are weak. So Paul, he was alone in Athens, so what did he do? He walked. He walked through the city until he was disturbed by being among a people who almost knew God but didn't know God. He walked through the markets, talking with anybody who was willing to speak with him. He walked through the cities, through the towns, through the alleyways, through the cultural centers, through the religious centers, examining again and again what kind of symbols, what's there in the culture that he could bridge the gospel and make God known in noble ways. And he found a launching pad. He found something that would help this people make sense out of God. An altar with the title on it, To the Unknown God. And he took that and he began to share the gospel by using something that they were already familiar with. And not only that, but he was able to take poetry, their own poems, and embed it in his sharing. In the three, why am I talking about the three mile an hour God? <clears throat> I'd like to read one more thing to you as I'm heading towards closing. So Jonathan Bonk is somebody who wrote a book called M Missions and Money. And he writes about another man from Africa called Koyama. And Koyama talks about the three mile an hour God. And this is what he says. Koyama points out that while racehorses run at 55 miles an hour, cars travel comfortably at 50 miles an hour, and jets fly 600 miles an hour at 35,000 feet above sea level. Human beings walk at only three miles an hour. A person's view of the world becomes increasingly detached and superficial in direct proportion to the speed and the altitude which that person is able to achieve. He goes on to say, as an African, when we walk three miles an hour, we see many things. We notice many things. We feel wind. We feel rain. We are warmed by the sunshine. We can smell the pleasant aroma as we pass food stalls. We meet many friends or even relatives. We hear children laugh and cry. We see them play. When we walk, we see, we feel, we smell, and we hear so many interesting things. We are not shut up. We are not rushing at 50 miles an hour. 
Our pace is three miles an hour on our own feet. That is what makes this seeing, feeling, smelling, hearing possible. And Jonathan Bach goes on to summarize uncritical util utilization of technology, and let me add, programs and projects and institutions, in conceiving, designing, and implementing our Western missions, missionary strategies inclines us to forget this most fundamental fact. Most person, persons, whether reached or unreached in this world, still walk at only three miles per hour. And our incarnate Lord deliberately walked also. J.R. Woodward and Dan White Jr. write, the church as business, the church as enterprise, the church as industrial complex creates a desire to be on stage. The church as movement fosters a desire to be on the streets. Would you bow your heads with me to pray? God, I pray for every student here at North Central University. I pray, Lord God, that you would create, oddly enough, people who know how to walk three miles per hour. I pray that you would create people here in this room that can teach my generation how to get back to community. How to get back to incarnational living. How to get back to identifying, being present with people. And not capturing everything up into a cause which then has to be shined and polished into an institution. And then has to be kept up and fundraised for and marketed for. So much so, by the end of the time, we don't even remember what the cause was in the beginning. Jesus, you walk three miles per hour on purpose. The Apostle Paul walked three miles an hour on purpose through Athens. The disciples walked three miles an hour on purpose, not because they, yeah, sure, they didn't have all the technology and all that, but I believe with my whole heart, even if they had all the, the things we could do, the institutions and the projects and the programs and the technology, they'd still be the ones to walk three miles an hour. Because if we don't walk three miles an hour, we can't smell, we can't taste, we can't hear, we can't see. We can't see the people around us until we become disturbed and distressed and we say, wow, I finally smell, I see these people, who are they? I'm gonna walk through their markets, I'm gonna walk through their cities, I'm gonna walk through their cultural centers, and I'm gonna keep trying to make God known to them until they invite me in relationally and say, come on into our outcropping, come on into our comfort zone, this is intriguing, tell us more. And to the point where some of them turn and believe and come to faith and become disciples of Jesus. God, I pray for this generation God, I'm, I can't, I have dreams about old-fashioned locks on the doors. I'm, I'm older now. I'm moving on. But I pray for this generation that you would equip them to walk three miles per hour so that they can get into the neighborhoods, get into the nooks and crannies, 
Go to places of the unreached and reach them and make you known in noble ways. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you, Gene. That was great.